Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create, share reality in a way that's true to yourself. I am especially humbled by my extraordinary guest today, a former professional baseball player with an amazing story of beating the odds. After being left using braces and crutches to walk due to polio, he set his sights on the tall task of playing professional baseball and didn't stop until he achieved his goal. He signed with the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1971 and would go on to have a 40-year career in baseball. Today, he helps support disabled kids and adults by giving them opportunities to participate in sports camps and creating awareness for their potential and accomplishments. I am thrilled to welcome the indomitable Dave Clark. Dave, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Yeah, thank you very much, Molly. I don't know about that indomitable uh, description, but uh, I appreciate it. And it's great to be on your show. It's a it's an honor and it's a real privilege and a special shout out and thanks to my friend Jim Sendoma who connected me to you and to Jim Cornfield um, and I'm really blessed. Turns out we all have upstate New York roots. Absolutely, so no surprise the feeling of kinship uh, we've had out of the gate. So Dave, yours is a journey and frankly it might be unbelievable if it weren't that you were right here sharing it. So please, for listeners, take us behind the scenes, help us learn about uh, you and, and help us appreciate your path in life. Well, Molly, um, it, it's kind of unbelievable to me now, too, from uh, from where I'm sitting at today, you know, much older. And uh, uh, you look back and you go, how in the world did you ever do that? Uh, but my journey began in a, in a place that you and I both know very well. Uh, began in Ithaca, New York. Um, I was born in Corning, New York, and about 10 months into life, I became very sick, and my parents took me to the doctor, and he misdiagnosed uh, his first diagnosis. They sent me back home with the flu, and three weeks later, when I wasn't any better, my parents took me back again. This time, I was diagnosed with, at the time, what was probably the COVID of the 1950s, polio. Uh, so I had polio, and uh, immediately the doctor uh, took me away from my parents, sent me to the Ithaca Reconstruction Home in Ithaca, New York, where I spent the next year of my life. And I can only uh, expound a little bit on things my mom told me and my dad related to me before they passed on. Um, Mom said their first day there, the doctor called them into his office on my after my admission and told them that uh, they shouldn't get their hopes up at all, that uh, there was a good chance I wasn't going to make it, period. And if I did, I would be a vegetable throughout my life. And he used that word vegetable, my mom said, meaning that I would have no muscle use whatsoever, and I would basically be uh, laying uh, for my whole life in a, in a bed. Uh, a year later, fast-forwarding, I came out of that reconstruction home walking with two full-length leg braces and crutches. And if I've always said this. If, if there was any positive out of the polio, it was that I got, I, I, I became sick before I had learned how to walk. And why I say that's fortunate is because I didn't have to transition from learning, from, from already a, a walking person to learning how to walk with crutches and braces. Because I hadn't walked before growing up with the crutches and braces, was my norm. I didn't know any other way. To me, that was an advantage. Um, so that was a, a positive from having polio early enough that I didn't walk. I, I wasn't walking yet. Um, 
So I learned to do things my way. And that, 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 that very beginning has transcended my whole life. You figure out how to get something done with what you've got. Uh, very early on, I learned what my weaknesses were. I learned what my strengths were. And so I didn't discard my weaknesses, but I put a lot of time into my strengths. And I, uh, I'll just give you an example um, in the sports world that I gravitated to very early in life. Um, I would analyze, and I can remember still to this day, I can remember being eight years old, six years old, and analyzing the sport in my mind, baseball, football, hockey, basketball, where my strengths lended me, what positions my strengths steered me toward in each, in, in each sport. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to be an outfielder in baseball because I couldn't run fast. Uh, so my little six, eight-year-old brain said, you got to pitch or play first base. Those are positions that you can play with the strengths you have and get away from with the weaknesses that you possess in hockey, it was goalie. Uh, so I can remember analyzing sports and figuring it out, so to speak. And that was, that was the beginning. That was the beginning. Can I ask your parents, and I can only imagine a roller coaster from he's not going to make it lying down for the rest of his life to seeing you walk out of there with crutches and braces uh, do you recall, uh, were they just, just huge fans outwardly cheering? I mean, what was their support of you like? Huge. Uh, my, my, I had two younger brothers that came along, uh, real quickly, so to speak. <laughs> um, uh, there's not a lot of years between us, two and four years between us. And and uh, when I came out of the reconstruction home, walking with crutches and braces, my parents were elated. Um, but I will say this. They were elated, but they treated me no differently than my brothers got treated. Uh, I was treated, whatever, whatever that quote normal is, because, you know, we all have... Um, we all have a disability of one kind or another or something we're weak at or because uh, basically a disability is something that you're, 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 you're weak at. And we all have that um, of some kind or another to some degree or another. Uh, but my parents never treated me any different. Um, and very early on in life, I realized I wasn't going to get away with anything. I didn't have special status because of my uh, condition. Uh, I was going to earn my keep. I was going to be a part of a family and do what I had to do to be a part of that family. Uh, so they were very supportive growing up. One other thing that I get across today when I speak to groups, and we'll be speaking to one Doug and I on Saturday, uh, we always address the parents and the caregivers of the participants in our disability baseball camps that we hold today. And one of the main points I, I stress is that when we have a child or young adult or person with some kind of a mental or physical challenge, we very frequently reel that leash in very tight. We don't let them try things. My parents were the exact opposite. They never, I can't remember once them stopping me from doing something I told them I wanted to try. And because of that, I found out what my potential was. I found out what I could and couldn't do. Uh, and there is a word can't. I, you know, you hear this, hey, there's no such word as can't. Well, there is in some to some degree, but not until you try it and see for yourself. You know, I have a wonderful story 
of my third grade gym teacher that really changed my life path, uh, what he did. Um, but that's the point we try to get across to the parents and caregivers of the kids we're dealing with today. Let loose of that leash. It's okay to get a little bloody elbow or a bloody chin. Now, obviously, don't set your child in the middle of a four-lane highway with an 18-wheeler steaming down on you. But it's okay to get them out and let them fail. Let them fail because from failure, we learn. We learn what works. And failure is not failure. Real failure is not trying something to begin with. And my parents instilled that in me very early in life. That's amazing. Hat, my hat is off to them for just the heart and just having to figure this out on their own because there's no manual for this. Do you recall, Dave, feeling sorry for yourself? Um, did you were uh, your kids can be mean. You know, were kids mean to you at school? Yeah, uh, never. I, I I say this honestly. I've never felt. Sorry for myself. Um, and I'll flash forward and then I'll go back a little bit. I'll flash for, forward to something a reporter said to me my first year in professional baseball. He was interviewing me at my locker in the locker room. And he said to me, you know, Dave, if you didn't have polio, there is no doubt in my mind you'd be a superstar in the major leagues. And I looked him straight in the eye and I said, sir, I said, if I didn't have polio, I might not be standing in front of you here today. And what he didn't understand was polio drove me to be successful in the dream that I, that I, had, that I envisioned. And he, if I had not had polio, my whole life path may have been completely different. So to go back, though, no, I never, I never felt sorry for myself ever. Uh, did I get bullied? Oh, you bet, you bet. Um, you know, it was. Uh, I never felt different. Uh, the neighborhood kids treated me very well, and there were plenty of them in our neighborhood at the time. We grew up in a working class neighborhood, and there were eight or ten kids around all the time, plus my brothers. And I never got any any. Uh, a free pass from anybody. I got treated just like my parents treated me. Those kids treated me the same. But when I got to school in kindergarten, first grade, that is the first time I actually felt different, so to speak. And I did experience bullying. Um, I handled it my own way. And uh, today that would be considered not the right way to handle it. Um, but I can tell you the way I handled it, stopped it. Um, so, um, there, you know, there's something to be said for sticking up for yourself and, and speaking out and confronting those who are bullying you. And that's what I did. And, uh, uh, eventually it, it stopped it and then sports reversed it, um, you know, when I started standing out a little bit in the sports world and little league and so forth, um, uh, my condition became more accepted by my peers. You, you, you have this energy of being really undaunted. And so you're in the sports. When did you just know I'm going to dig in and be a professional? baseball player i mean i'm just wondering was that just you were just like going to make that happen um oh no 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 i i i uh i didn't even know up to the point of it happening whether it could or not all i knew is that i wanted a shot i wanted a shot to measure myself at that level and if i couldn't make it at least I gave it all I had, and it wasn't to be. And that's another point I try to get across in, in, in my speaking is you may have a goal that you set forth. First of all, 
don't ever try to jump to the entire goal in one step. It, it's little steps towards the goal because you can accomplish a little step. You feel more confident. And as we talked uh, on our podcast yesterday with you, success breeds confidence. Confidence breeds success. And so my advice is you when you're when you're going for goal set forth little steps toward that goal so you can accomplish those little steps and then maybe take two steps in one day and always be ready to take one backwards uh you know when an airplane takes off i always use this an analogy uh you know when i fly to corning new york from florida i've got to fly north Several times the plane I'm in has taken off going south because that's the takeoff pattern that day. And then they reverse the plane and turn it and head north. We have to do that toward our goals, too. It's not a straight line. And and you're not going to get there without bumps and walls and, and, and hills, sometimes mountains. Uh, but... To get to a goal, you've got to get over, under, around, or through all of those things. And sometimes when you're on the way to that goal, there's an exit ramp. And all of a sudden, you're headed toward the goal you originally intended, but you get off on that exit ramp. And I'll give you an example. I wanted to be a professional hockey player. However, at the college level, which is as far as I got, I suddenly realized that my abilities in hockey were not conducive to playing professionally. The next step was not going to happen for me in hockey as a player. What did I do? After the baseball seasons ended, I walked in off the street in Elmira, New York one day. I read a little paragraph notice in the Elmira Star Gazette newspaper that said Elmira College Hockey looking for color commentator on the radio. I walked in cold off the street to the radio station. I said, I'm here to apply for the uh, color commentator hockey. And the guy said, have you had any experience? And without hesitation, I said, yes. Thank God he didn't ask where because the experience that I was alluding to was the little board game that my brothers and I played growing up when I would broadcast as we were playing, you know, down the right wing side, here comes a shot score. And, <laughs> and, and, and so I told the guy, yes, I have experience. And like I said, thank God he didn't ask where, because I'd have been stumbling for an answer, but he didn't. He said, show up at the Elmira uh, domes. On Saturday evening, there's three of you. We're going to give each of you one period, and then we're going to pick one of you. So I did my period, and uh, come the next day, I got a call, and they asked me to be the color commentator. Two games into my color commentator uh, experience, the play-by-play -play man quit. And we were doing a game in Rochester, New York at RIT. And I got a call from the radio station. Have you ever done play-by-play? -play? I said, yes. Again, I hadn't, but I had it in a board game. And he <laughs> said, "He said, well, you are the head. Uh, you are the play-by-play -play man tonight. And, and right away, I panicked. <laughs> I went, oh, my gosh, what did I get myself into here? But. I did okay. I was alone. I didn't have a color commentator. I went to Rochester. I did the play-by-play. -play. I did Elmira College hockey for the next 10 years. And then Elmira got a pro team called the Jackals. I ended up moving to the Jackals, doing the Jackals. And then we moved to Florida, my family and I, and unbeknown to me, the area we moved to had a pro hockey team and a minor league team. And I ended up doing four years of hockey broadcasting for them. And I got a call from one of my old partners 
and he had moved up to the Nashville Predators, and he said, do you want to do uh, an NHL game with me? And so I ended up doing two fill-in NHL broadcasts, and that's my point. I love hockey. I didn't get there as a player, but I did as a broadcaster. So there's always something that you can take an exit ramp to if you suddenly realize your goal may not be reachable for you. And that is another key thing. And I know I'm rambling here, but be realistic and know whether or not you really have a chance to get to that goal once you start. And if you don't, you know, if you get down that road a little bit and you change your mind or you see something, uh, you know, it's okay to get that exit ramp off. And, and divert your plans and go for something else. It's amazing. The folks are thinking that you played college hockey. They'd be like, realistic. I wouldn't have realistically thought I could play college hockey. So just kudos to you for the, just the going after it. And, you know, I don't know that you're out there to prove anybody else wrong, but just to do what you were wanting to do, Dave. And that's so impressive to have the dream and go for it. And then to, I think to your point, you go as far as you can go and that's great. And then don't be surprised when another way to fulfill that dream or the dream can take a shift is still very powerful. Um, no, I mean, I think you should always have an open mind and always be thinking uh, outside the box. You know, I still want to get to my goal, but now I have a vision over here of something that I might be able to do too. And, and and just just keep an open mind all the way. Yeah, you clearly excel at that. So so talk about the baseball and you know professional sports. Everybody knows. I mean, it's just brutal. So just talk yeah, about yeah. how did you go about this because this is extraordinary. Okay, well. I would say it was around 14 or 15 when I was holding my own against against the best competition in Corning, New York. Uh, but you got to realize Corning, New York is a 10,000 people town. Uh, you know, we have a, a 10,000 people in Corning, very small town. So in essence, you're, you're a bigger fish in a, in a very small pond. And, but I, I got this dream going. I want to, I want to take this as far as I can go. I was also realistic. Uh, you know, I knew I wasn't going to get scouts coming to my games, looking at me and, 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 and looking at me and, and, and terming me a prospect. I knew that wasn't going to happen smart enough to know that so and then i started thinking well you're a pitcher and you're not throwing 100 miles an hour either uh your fastball is not going to get you to the next level what can you do so in my little feeble mind i started saying uh, can i throw a screwball can i throw this can i and i came up with a knuckleball and a knuckleball is a pitch that basically, for those that don't follow baseball, it's a pitch that doesn't come in real fast, but it floats in and it acts like a butterfly. It's all over the place. And it is a very difficult pitch to hit if thrown properly. Uh, on the other hand, if you throw it and it flattens out, it's a very hittable pitch. <laughs> so mm. it's so it's a pitch that takes a lot of work, a lot of effort. And I don't know, again, at, at about 14 or 15, I was realizing to get to my dream, I've got to think outside the box. I've got to do something that's a bit different. And for me, that was the knuckleball. I started taking a bucket of balls down to the local bakery that had a, a concrete wall on the side. I literally taped a strike zone on the side of that wall. And I walked off the pitcher's mound distance. 
and I would go down there every day and when it wasn't snowing and I would take that bucket of balls and I would throw knuckleballs to that strike zone. And I, I, um, I practiced several different grips, several different arm angles, several different release points. And it took me the better part of two years before I could really say, this is it. This is what works for me. This, this grip, this arm angle, this release point is what optimizes that pitch for me. And I've got a funny story, but I don't think we can tell it on air. Doug, Doug knows the story. Because um, <laughs> my dad used to catch me. And uh, he would go out and, and he would be my catcher. And as long as I was throwing my fastball and my curveball, and he was a pretty good athlete himself, he had no problem. As long as I was throwing my fastball, my curveball, change up. Uh, but I started throwing the knuckleball, and as it got better, he started having trouble handling it because it was it was moving all over the place. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, uh, <laughs> this is when I knew I had it. I was probably sixteen or seventeen, and this is the story I tell Doug, and I'll try to, I'll try to keep this as clean as I can. But Dad. Dad never wore a cup when he caught me. <laughs> and so I threw a knuckleball on this particular day and it danced all over. It was moving real well. And he never wore, he wore a mask, but he didn't wear a chest protector or shin pads either when he caught me. So this particular pitch nailed him right in the kneecap. And he's up using four-letter words. He's hopping on one leg. He's jumping around, and and he is not happy. He's in pain. I go down and you know, sorry, Dad. You know, I'm trying to get him to feel better, and we're 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 waiting for that pain to go away. And finally, goes away. He gets down in the crouch again. He goes, "All right, let's go. Let's do it again." And the very next pitch I threw was probably even better than that pitch it didn't touch any part of his glove and it hit him right where it shouldn't oh no and he doubled over his heads down into the ground the the ironic part is i i started jumping up and down going that's it dad that's working that's it right there and then i suddenly realized i just hit him where i shouldn't have and he's in tremendous pain <laughs> And so I go from elation to, hey, oh, dad, are you all right? No, and, I, and I run down. I run down, and again, he's doubled over with his head into the ground. Finally, we, you know, he, he gasps for air, and he comes up, and we finally get him feeling back to semi-normal. And he looked at me, and he goes, I'm never catching you again. <laughs> That's when I knew I had the knuckleball down. And at that point, uh, you ask how I pursued my dream. Again, I knew nobody was going to be looking at this guy with one leg brace now. I took the other leg brace off against doctor's orders so that I could have more mobility and quickness. And so now I'm pitching with crutches and a left leg brace. And my brain says, okay, you have to go after them. They're not going to come after you, meaning the major league clubs. So I sat down and I hand wrote every major league club there was in the 1970s. And there were 24 of them at that time. And I wrote down my hopes, dreams, requesting a tryout, blah, 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 mail them out. I got three replies out of 24. <laughs> and I was ecstatic that I got three replies out of 24. And I got one chance. And as you said earlier, that was with the Pittsburgh Pirate Organization. And one thing I try to get across in speaking is... I had one opportunity presented to me to pursue my dream. 
I put in all my time and effort working out four hours a day, six days a week, running five miles a day on my crutches at 13 minutes a mile. I put all that in without any guarantee I was going to get an opportunity to pursue my dream. But that's what you have to do because now if you do get an opportunity, you're ready. You are ready. You put the time in, you're ready. If you don't make it, at least you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, I gave it my best shot. If you're not willing to do that, don't don't set goals down. Because if you don't work to get to the goal, and you can't accept the fact that I'm going to work this hard with no, no guarantee of an opportunity, that opportunity, if you don't work out or don't do the work necessary to get to your goal, if that opportunity comes along and you haven't done the work, it's going to blow right by you. And there's a thousand other people behind there waiting for that chance. So put the time in, even though you haven't been guaranteed any kind of opportunity, and then you'll be ready. You ran a 13-minute mile with crutches. Uh, yeah, with crutches. That was pretty slow, but uh, um, but I can say this much. It certainly built up my upper body, and uh, I needed that. That was one of my strengths. So can you take us through, you're going down, are you like beyond super nervous? Or you're just so confident in the sense that I know that I'm going to give it my best. And if they don't pick me, they don't pick me. What was that like? No, I, I again, I'll say, I, I'll, I always say this too, when I'm speaking, if somebody tells you they've never had fear or they've never been afraid, they're lying. They're lying. Uh, I was scared out of my wits going going out to Missouri as an 18-year-old kid, not knowing what to expect, crying out. I had no idea if my skills measured up to skills from other kids in the country, other guys in the country. And but I let that fear drive me, not paralyze me. Fear can paralyze you. Fear can push you. And I chose to let that fear push me to accomplish the best that I could be. Was I scared? You bet. And I can remember the first day of tryouts. Pitchers nowadays don't bat because they have what's called the designated hitter. But I came along before the designated hitter. And my first two years, I had to bat for myself. So they were the very first day of, of tryouts, they were putting the pitchers through their batting practice, and we had to bunt. And the first pitch I saw, I bunted it into my own eye. <laughs> it came off the bat, flew up, and hit me in my own eye. And I thought right away, okay, that looked like a fool. And I'll bet you I'm done now. That was the first thought that occurred. Not, ouch, I just bunted a baseball in my own eye. It was, you fool. You just blew your chance. Oh, my God. How did the other folks trying out receive you? Very good question, and and to be frank, um, I was not accepted. Uh, you, you said earlier that professional sports is is tough, and there's no doubt. And there's this mindset among athletes that you have to fit the mold, so to speak. I didn't fit the mold, and so. I was the Jackie Robinson of the minor leagues. Um, you know, there were plenty of my own teammates that didn't accept me and didn't treat me with respect. I had to earn that. And um, 
it's it's really ironic because I found that after about two weeks of being a man on an island, so to speak, um, you know, nobody wanted to hang with me. Nobody wanted to do anything with me. Um, they tolerated me in the clubhouse and on the field, but they didn't want to hang with me. But after about two weeks, when they saw that I was out there first running by the time they came to the stadium, and I was the last guy to leave. And then I started having some success in games on the field. And that started slowly to turn that, turn that uh, mentality to the point, as I said, it's very ironic, but it just about two weeks it would take. And after that, it was like your brother. You can smack your brother, but if somebody else does, you got his back. And that was exactly the mentality. My teammates, they went from not wanting to associate with me to, you better leave that guy alone because if you do anything to him, I'm going to bust your neck. And, and once we got to that point, it was pretty cool. Because nobody could fool with me from any other teams because uh, they had my back. But it was a two-week process. So in those two weeks, that's a lot for a young person. How did you handle that? Did you call home? Did you just suck it up, Dave? How did you handle that? I think I think you said it correctly right there. I sucked it up. I realized, uh, you, you know, I, I, I was blessed with a strong mind and, 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 uh, and, 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 uh, you know, a body that had weaknesses. And, but as I said many times, the, the, the muscle between your ears is really the most important muscle in your body. Um, because if you think you can, you can, you get a great shot. If you don't think you can, you got no shot. And that, that, that perspective, that mindset, is so important. And I knew, I knew going in that, uh, you know, that there were going to be guys, L listen, at, at the professional level, you're taking somebody's job. When you are at the professional level, there are millions of guys that want to be there. And when you make it, there's constantly somebody trying to push you out because they want to be there. And, and I got that mentality. Um, so I was willing to put up with anything I had to endure to keep my dream alive. And, and so, yeah, I sucked it up. And, uh, you know, I found things to do for two weeks. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, I didn't know it was going to be two weeks. I thought it might be my whole career. But I was willing to put up with that because, frankly, I was enjoying the ride. I had I had reached where I wanted to go and I wanted to keep doing it. Well, you share, I'm sure you had many memorable games, but just share a few, you know, highlights, if you will, from your career reel. Well, there's one that sticks out in particular, and that was uh uh I got traded. Uh and one day I got traded uh from the first place team in this particular league to the last place team. <laughs> and uh, uh, so in one day I went from the top to the bottom. And um, as as ironic as it would be, uh, three, three days after the trade, we were going to be playing my old team. And so I was, uh, as, as luck would have it, my turn to pitch came up the first game we played against my old team. And uh, I literally had a lot of motivation to do the best I could and maybe a little extra motivation. And uh, I shut them out for seven innings and we had a two nothing lead going to the bottom of the eighth inning. And uh, my, my old battery mate my old catcher teammate ended up hitting a two-run homer off of me 
to tie the game 2-2. Uh, but we got, a, uh, we got a run in the top of the ninth and shut them down in the bottom of the ninth, and we won the game 3-2. And that, that game really sticks out uh, uh, because, you know, I had something to prove. You traded me away, man, and, uh, you know, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and, uh, so that that was a game that stuck out. Um, there's some games that stick out for other reasons. Um, you know, there was a game in in uh, Hannibal, Missouri, uh, where again there were no designated hitters yet. This was very early in my career, and um, we were leading, and the opposing pitcher was on second base. I was pitching. I uh, gave up a hit, and when you give up a hit, you you, and there's a runner on second. The pitcher runs behind the, the catcher to back him up, because you know there's going to be a throw coming to the plate trying to get that runner from second. And so I was running to back up the catcher, being a little slower than the normal guy. I got to the baseline just as the opposing pitcher was running by me toward home plate and being a little bit upset with myself. I said a few four letter words to the pitchers. He went by me and uh, he ended up scoring the tying run. Well, I came up to bat the next inning, and the pitcher didn't forget what I had called him. <laughs> and, the next, the very first pitch came flying at my head and uh, I got out of the way and uh, the next pitch hit me in the head and knocked me down in the batter's box. I was out for, I don't know, five seconds maybe. And when I woke up, my first memory is my face being down in the ground, but all my teammates out on the field throwing punches on my behalf. And so that one sticks out that, uh, you know, I'm sitting there in the dirt with my head ringing from getting hit in the head. But at the same time, I'm thinking, Hey, the guy's got my back. So those are a couple that stick out. Dave, talk to us about evolving to D3. And, you know, when you decided to end your professional career, just talk about um, the emotions there and then how you've, uh, what you're doing these days well first of all when you when you when you step down as a player you know they say that an athlete dies twice and that's that's very very uh very valid uh it's a tough transition when you've uh basically done your whole life played a, a, a kid's game and then at 35 i was fortunate enough to have played till till i was 35 when i had to finally step down um, it, it's tough. It's a tough transition, but the camps themselves actually evolved before I, before I retired as an active player. Um, you know, very early on, I've, I've had, I understand what it's like to have some weaknesses, to have some challenges in life. And so I, I my whole life, I've had an empathy for those that are uh, dealing with challenges. And so I, um, in my, even in the seventies, when I was just getting started in my career, if we went into a town and I saw a group home or a, a special populations center, or I would go in off the street and say, Hey, you know, I got tickets to the game tonight. You want to come over? And of course they'd all say, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to come over. And then I'd take it a step farther and I'd say, well, if you've got 10 or 15 people that want to come out four hours before game time, we'll get you right down on the field and, and you can play catch with some of the pro guys. And, uh, of course, that was big. They, they all wanted to come out and get on the field. And so I'd go back to my team and I'd say, hey, guys, how many – how many guys want to come out with me tonight? And you know, it'd be five or six guys want to go out, and we so it was really informal, but we get five or six guys out there with fifteen or twenty people from different groups in the area, and we'd do an impromptu camp, you know, and and then we'd 
get off the field. They'd go up in the stands and they would watch the game and they'd know our names by that time. And they'd be up there cheering for us. That's how it all started. That was the seed that, that planted the start of what we do today. And then after I retired, I actually, um, started getting a little format together for it was more organized and and then Doug Cornfield jumped on board with me and I think it was 06 or 07 so today what we do is we do these camps but we involve pro teams so like this Saturday a couple of days from now we're doing one here in Fort Myers Florida with the Minnesota Twins farm team the players will come out on the field they will teach, instruct, interact with 60 to 100 participants. Uh, and then after the camp ends, we have a luncheon for the players, the participants, the parents. And then we bring the entire group back on Sunday. They will watch the game. They'll get, they'll get feeded on the, on the field before the game. They'll get their names up on the big board, on the scoreboard, and they'll form a little tunnel right on the field by the dugout, and the starting lineup will run through the tunnel. And uh, and then they'll go up into the stands and watch the game. So that's the format we, we do today, and uh, we do them all over the country. We do them from Hartford, Connecticut to uh, Fort Myers, Florida. And uh, COVID actually... Uh, impacted us as it did everybody, uh, impacted us greatly. Uh, some of the rules changed with Major League Baseball. Uh, you know, we we had a period of time where we were not allowed to use the players anymore. Uh, we're getting back to more normalcy now. Uh, we will have the players Saturday from the, from the Twins team. And uh, uh, so we're getting hopefully back further and further away from COVID. You know, I can imagine these camps being such a game changer for the young people. And I could see it being a really great experience for the parents. Um, so I, I would love to hear your thoughts, Dave, for the parents of folks who have kids who have some of these uh, unique weaknesses and wanting to help them uh, stay positive and reach their potential. Again, I'll go back to what I said earlier. Um, you know, I encourage the parents to let their kids try things because if they don't try, we don't know what their potential is. It's really not about baseball, this camp. It's about getting out on the field and just trying. And when they have a little bit of success doing that, then their mind opens up and they go, well, I want to try this. I want to try that. And the more they try, the more they're apt to find what their potential is. And that's the point we're trying to get across to the parents. Loosen up that leash because every one of these people here have some type of potential. We don't know what it is, but they have it. We've got to mine it. We've got to mine it out. And the only way we can mine that out is to let them dip their little their little uh, uh, thing in the water to see if they can mine out a little gold nugget. You can't do it without going to the without mining. So we got to let them try all different kinds of things and see where they gravitate toward. One last question, my friend. You're just such an inspiration, and I'm so grateful for you being you and the example you are to all of us. Uh, what was it like for you to take us through your journey today? Um, I have found Doug Cornfield made me aware of this, um, that I have a way to better other people's lives, um, that I shouldn't keep my story to myself for, for many years. I just thought, you know, why, why does anybody want to hear my story? Uh, we've all got our own stories and everybody has their own story. Now, Doug made me realize that 
I could impact some other people in a positive way. And uh, so it's always a pleasure. And I appreciate you letting me uh, talk on, on your podcast. It's been a pleasure to be here. But it's, 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 it's always an honor to be able to share my story and give some other people inspiration and, and hope. And it springs eternal. Dave, you are a wow. I appreciate your heart, your soul, and just sheer guts, my friend. And I just have to thank you for being part of the solution, helping all to be safe, seen, and heard in our true and very best selves. You take good care, my friend. Thank you for having me, Molly. It's been a pleasure. Ah, Thanks. Oh, my gosh, folks. Where there's a will, there's a way. Thought for the week from Dave. There are two types of dreamers. Dreamers that dream and dreamers that dream and do. Guess which one he falls into. Finally, my appreciation to all those who make this show possible. The amazing crew at Voice America and the awesome Eric Patton, who is behind the scenes supporting every episode and the driving force for the Stay It Skillfully website and social media. And that's a wrap, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Dave's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways. And no, I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 